Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. Even though the bulletin has Hebrews 2 and we will get there. I want to start by reading John's account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Um, in, in one sense, we're pausing our study of John um, this week, next week, and then the following week. Um, but in another sense, we're continuing it. But I'd like to begin by reading John's account. This is one of the events that occurs in all the Gospels, the triumphal entry. Um, there's, there's not many that show up in all of them. This is one. John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 to 19. John 12, 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Let's pray. Lord God, um, as we consider your son coming to Jerusalem this final time, coming to die on the cross for our sins, help us to understand the significance, the weight the magnitude of that event. And in particular, help us to understand how the incarnation, the taking on of flesh and blood, was essential for this purpose and mission. In Jesus' name, amen. You can now turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and while you do, I'll give you my train of thought that gets us here. In John's gospel, more than any other gospel, we have been studying and seeing, held up with bright, shining lights, as it were, the deity of Jesus. Most recently in John chapter 5, Jesus' jaw-dropping statement, my father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. And in doing so, the Jews understand he was making himself equal with God. And then, as Jesus speaks, that's exactly what he means. And Jesus insists his word gives life to the spiritually dead. And Jesus insists that his word will cause all the dead to rise from the tombs. He will judge all who have ever lived. Yes, he's fully God. But in our passage last week, Jesus shifted from the title, partway through the text, Son of God to Son of Man. And even as Son of Man directly linked with Daniel chapter 7 and the one who comes before the Ancient of Days and to him is given judgment and a kingdom and a throne. And Jesus says this is why the Father has given him judgment, all judgment. Son of man, in a broader sense, means mortal, human. And I, I spoke to many of you afterwards, making the connection that not only does the Father give Jesus the Son judgment because he is the Son of Man from Daniel, but because it is fitting that the one who would judge men is a man. And so as we approach Resurrection Sunday, in one sense, every Sunday is a declaration of the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. But the Sunday we set aside particularly to focus, to consider 
his death and resurrection. I want to consider that other end of the pole, not Jesus' deity, but his humanity. The church has always held both of these truths to be necessary, crucial truths. Jesus in John makes it clear, receiving his claim of deity is essential. He says in John 8 to the Jews, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Later in that chapter, he takes the divine name on himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And so we understand that believing that Jesus is God, the Son of God, is necessary. But interestingly, the first error about Jesus to enter the church that we can tell of was actually the denial of his humanity. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, we read this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the earliest denials, interestingly, were not the denial of the deity of Jesus, but his humanity. In a world steeped with Plato and his thinking, that the notion that the immortal uncreated, eternal, holy, perfect God could actually enter into creation? Unthinkable. He would compromise himself. Creation, they understood, was fundamentally flawed. And so as, as best as we can reconstruct the earliest heresies around Jesus centered around the denial of his humanity, he looked human. He seemed human, but he wasn't really human. And in our text this morning in Hebrews, not only insists that Jesus was human, but gives us a number of reasons why that is critical. Why that is critical. Why did Jesus become mortal? Well, the simplest answer is tied up in the root of the word mortal. Mortis. From which we get mortician, death. Mortal is something or someone that can die. Jesus became mortal to die. Without becoming mortal, he could not die. So I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 2. Read the entirety of the chapter. We're going to focus on five verses at the end as we consider why Jesus had to take on flesh and blood, why he needed to do that in preparation for the crucifixion. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Therefore, we must pay much closer attention so that, we, that what we have heard... Sorry, let me start over. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, covered with glory and honor because of the suffering and death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then we pick up the text we'll be focusing on this morning. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I picked this passage precisely for some of those phrases. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This was necessary. The fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood was not optional. It was mission critical. Why? Why is it critical for us that we have a human Savior, not just a divine Savior? Why is the humanity of Jesus as essential as the deity of Jesus? Well, this morning's text, I think, will help explain that for us. Now, the passage in front of us breaks into two chunks. I've taken the text from the ESV and just put it in the outline, trying to coordinate it so you can see the logic of it. But the two statements of the incarnation, one seen in verse 14 and one seen in verse 17, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and then here's the statement, he himself likewise partook of the same things. There's the first statement. Jesus partook of flesh and blood. And then in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So there are the two statements on the incarnation. He partook of the same thing. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And ordered around those statements, the author of Hebrews gives reasons, purposes, consequences, goals for the incarnation. So at the time we have this morning, let's, let's work through this. He himself likewise partook of the same things, verses 13 to 16. And what we get first is a basis. You're blank, there's basis. Why? What's the cause? For what reason? Well, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, because of this, this, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So who, who are the children? Well, back a little earlier in the chapter, part of the reason we have the whole chapter, it's the children God's given to him. He, he's quoting Isaiah 8 in verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And this is, this is a type of language that shows up in a couple of places in the New Testament. I'll just give you one of them in John, in John 17. Because um, I'll link, I'll try to link many things to John as we're studying through John. In John 17, Jesus, in what is often referred to as his high priestly prayer, says this. John 17, starting in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The Father gave a group of people to Jesus. 
And Jesus says, I've manifested your name to them from out of the world. They are yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. So it's my simple point is this. The ones the Father gave Jesus is not everybody. It's a subset of everybody because Jesus distinguishes who he's praying for, who he's not praying for. God, in eternity past, the Father gave to the Son a people who will become his brothers through the spirit of adoption. That's, that's, that's the children. So this, the Son, and, and in some sense we're caught up in intra-Trinitarian love, the Father gives a people to the Son. The Son needs to redeem the people the Father gave to him. That's the rationale. So since the children, the ones given to him, share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. That's the basis. Now the goal. He did it to correspond to us. It's a simple principle. You've, you've got to become like what you want to save. And Jesus wants to save men and women. He's got to become a man. The point we made, he, he didn't become an angel. That's why there's no savior for angels. So, that, so the basis is his identification, his taking on and sharing in solidarity with the children that were given to him. And then we get to the first purpose. So that, that's, that's purpose language. Why? Why, is, why does he have to become like the children given to him? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of the devil. So your first purpose here, Point B, his purpose is destroy, to destroy. He took on flesh and blood that he might destroy something. And what he wanted to destroy is the devil and the power of death. He took on flesh and blood that through death, so there's the logic. He took on flesh and blood. He became mortal so that he could die. And he chose to die that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So your blanks here. He took on flesh and blood that he might die. He took on flesh and blood that he might die. The incarnation occurred so that Good Friday's crucifixion could happen. And that's the rationale. Why did Jesus become man? It's more than simply to show he cared. That's true. It's more than simply to enter into our sufferings. That's true. Our text will deal with that this morning as well. It fundamentally is so that he could die and that in his death he might accomplish something. And the first thing he accomplishes in his death is the destruction of the devil, the one who has the power of death. He he, he takes the fangs, as it were, out of the beast. He took on flesh and blood that he might die. And in his death, point two, Jesus destroys Satan's primary weapon, his weapon. He goes on to give some rationale of what he means. Jesus takes on flesh and blood. He becomes like the children given to him so that he can die, so that in his death he can destroy death. I, I love pointing this out that at funerals, when I, when, I, when I do funerals. God so abhors funerals and death that Jesus came to die to put an end to them. God, God amends our grief. We just had a funeral for Gary and it's right for us to abhor it. It's right for us to say this isn't right. This is unnatural. G- Jesus agrees and he went to the cross and died a bloody death so that death might be put to death. This is the language of 1 Corinthians 15, what we'll look at next week. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In Jesus' death, he set in motion a chain of events that will culminate with the death of death, the end of death. No more funerals. No more death. That's a long-term goal, but we read next point two, to deliver, to deliver. Even as we still see death around us, even as we still go to funerals, the power of death is undone in that he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That slavery is done. So he took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and second point purpose, to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Everybody's afraid of death. You want to prove that point? Just notice how little we like to talk about it. Uh, Another point I frequently make at funerals is here's, here's, when I'm doing a funeral, here's the one place you can't look away. We are all headed towards a funeral. If the Lord doesn't delay, we're all going to die. 10 out of 10 people die. It's going to happen. And, and we dread that, and we, we buy anti-aging cream, and we, we, we dye our hair, and in part, it's to deny the reality that our bodies are decaying and crumbling and getting weaker. I am not as strong as I was. I got pains in my back now that I did not have before, and I'm beginning to, no, I used to bounce back from everything, you know, when you were in your 20s, and then one day, I didn't bounce back, and I'm like, maybe that pain in my shoulder is going to be with me for the rest of my life. Probably will be, because my body is decaying. My body is breaking down. I'm dying slowly. We all are. And we dread that. And that dread enslaves us. It fills us with fear and anxiety and it rules us. And the things we do and the lengths we go for, either to tell ourselves it won't happen or won't happen soon or to distract ourselves from its reality are astounding. You see, and the reason for that is a theological basis for that. And the point is that death here is the proof and consequence of sin. According to Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The proof that you and I and everyone you know are sinners, sinful, guilty, is we can die. We are dying. That's the proof. And we know that intuitively. We can tell ourselves, I don't believe it. You do. It's the reason why you fear death. And you should fear death if you're outside of Christ. If you're not clothed in this righteousness, you should be very afraid because death ultimately is not the end, but it delivers to judgment. A little later in Hebrews chapter 9, we read, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Why do we fear death? Why does death have such a control over us? Because we know death means we're sinful, and we know that death ushers us into judgment, and if we're sinful and we're going into judgment, we're not going to fare well if that's all there is to it. This is true of everyone, even people who've never heard of Jesus and the Bible. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles, everyone who's not Jewish, the goyim, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the laws written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. You know, people have guilty consciences without ever hearing about Jesus, without ever having a verse in the Bible read to them. These are things we intuitively know. They're hardwired into all of us, and it's why we fear 
death and that's why we dread judgment and we should god it's a grace of god that's some of the common information god gave all of us hey some part of you is saying that wasn't good you didn't do that right that was wrong some part of you is condemning you is warning you and another part of you recognizes i'm, I'm heading to death and death is going to usher me to judgment and that's that's not i'm not going to fare well there and that fear, that math put together cripples and enslaves people. And what Jesus did in his death is free people from that fear. How so? Well, we're to get to it in the second half of our text, but the short answer is by providing a sacrifice for sin, by making an atonement, by enabling forgiveness, those who are forgiven can approach death without fear. Because for those of us who are in Christ, death doesn't usher into judgment, but paradise. So the immediate consequence is we still see funerals. Jesus' death has not yet put an end to death. It will. But Jesus' death has, right now already, for those who know him, put an end to the slavery that comes through the fear of death. Which is why Paul can say in Thessalonians, we ought to grieve. We grieve. We grieve those who miss, but we grieve differently than those of the world who have no hope. He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the proof and consequence of sin. and Death delivers to judgment. He gives a third reason. He says it negatively first and then positively. The ESV puts the word help here. Um, but your blank is to take hold. To take hold. And, and that's the idea behind the word. And, and I think to take hold to give aid is, is right. But the two words given for help here and then later in verse 18 are different Greek words. The idea of this one is to take hold of. And, and, and you can easily picture someone grasping, taking hold of someone to give them a hand to help, to help them up, to secure them. Um, that, that's kind of the idea. Surely it's not angels that he helps. This, this ties back to the rationale. He, had to, he, he took on flesh and blood because the children given to him had flesh and blood. He had to become like what he wanted to save. He didn't become like an angel, so there's no savior for angels. It's a remarkable thing. We are not the only moral creatures who could use saving, but we're the only ones who have a Savior. We know that some of the angels are already being held in gloomy chains of darkness. There will be a judgment for them that will be perfect justice with no grace, with no mercy. There will be on display perfect, absolute justice and judgment. But for us, for us, there is forgiveness for us there is a savior for us there is someone who's taken hold of us who's grabbed us by the hand as it were and he's done that through his taking on of flesh but he offers help he helps the offspring of abraham so you understand no no humanity no flesh and blood no help no aid which brings us to the second half of our text therefore he had to be made like his brothers and the author of Hebrews is still developing the same thought. He, he, the points he's making are looking at the same reality from different angles. Jesus took on flesh to die, and he died that he might tear the fangs out of the devil, as it were, destroy him and destroy his weapon. He died that he might give help to us. In the second half of the text, let's read verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being 
tempted. So the first thing I want you to see is the degree. Point A, the degree. Um, I don't know how you can say it any more clearly than this. Did Jesus really become flesh and blood? Did he really become human? Did he really become like us? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's, that's a pretty clear statement. Yes, Jesus became fully human. He didn't just appear human. And, and this is one of the things we've got to bear in mind. Is it's easy for us, as we try to juggle the humanity, the deity of Christ, to undermine all the things that we should be in awe about with his humanity by his deity and vice versa. I had a professor who used to say we humanify his deity and we deify his humanity. So whenever Jesus is doing things that is a man or remarkable, we think, well, he was God. It wasn't hard. We should marvel. I mean, I, I've pointed this out before, but in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2, we, don't, we get very few snapshots of Jesus' life before his baptism. And in Luke chapter 2, he stays behind in Jerusalem for three days, and he's in the temple day and night asking questions, giving answers of the teachers. And, and Luke frames that by showing us the boy grew in wisdom and stature before man and God. And so Luke gives us Jesus studying he is diligent. Here's a young man intent on studying the word of God, talking with the word of God, understanding the word of God. So later in Luke's gospel, when Jesus has mastered the scripture and he's silencing the Sadducees and he's confounding the Pharisees, we're not to conclude, well, of course he wrote it, he's God. Rather, we're to conclude, this is the man who studied diligently when he was 12. This is the fruit of that labor. Jesus learned, Jesus grew. I'll read a, read a quote from John MacArthur in his commentary on this. He became our sympathizer. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was overcome with fatigue. He slept. He was taught. He grew. He loved. He was astonished. He was glad. He was angry. He was indignant. He was sarcastic. He was grieved. He was troubled. He was overcome by future events. He exercised faith. He read the scriptures. He prayed. He sighed in his heart when he saw another man in illness, and he cried from his, when his heart ached. Jesus felt everything we will ever feel and more. For example, he felt temptation to agree that we could not possibly experience. Most of us never know the full degree of temptation because we simply succumb long before it reaches that stage. C.S. Lewis once said, the only person who knows how strong the German army is is the one who fights the German army. The one who put up with the devil's temptation and, and was victorious, knows the full strength of that temptation. You and I who yield to it only know its strength to a point, the point where we yield. Jesus became fully human and yet without sin. That's the one distinction. T turn over to chapter 4 of Hebrews. The author makes the same point there. In chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is made in every way as you and I are, yet without sin. That's the only, the only difference. If you want to practically consider it, the second Adam was made like the first Adam. And, and I do not believe Jesus had any advantages that the first Adam did not have. I don't believe he, I think that's partly what it means why he emptied himself. He didn't rely upon his uniquely divine attributes. He learned, he depended on his father. He read God's word, he studied it. He was fully human. 
He was fully human, and we get the degree in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers. And what's, what's the purpose? What's the goal? Why did he have to be made like his brothers in every respect? Point B, here's your purpose. So that he might. And once again, we have three purpose statements. The first, just put the word priest, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You may not realize this, but what you and I deeply need, foundationally, is a priest. You do. One, not a bunch. You, you need a priest. You have one. And so we've got to pause and say, okay, what is a priest? What is a priest? Well, turn, turn to Hebrews 5. Thankfully, we get some mild description of what a priest is here in Hebrews 5. What does the author have in mind primarily when he thinks of a priest? Especially a high priest. Hebrews 5.1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's a, that's a wonderful explanation. And I've given this example before. You can think of the priest and the prophet as sort of corollary and opposite functions. Both the priest and the prophet go between God and man. And the prophet, think of Moses coming down the mountain. He's met with God and he's got to tell the Israelites what God has to say to them. The prophet speaks to men on behalf of God. So the prophet functions in between man and God, speaking to man on behalf of God. That's the basic function of a prophet. So Moses comes down, let me tell you what the Lord God requires. Let me tell you what the Lord God says. He's representing God to the people. We see here the priest does the exact opposite. The priest is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. And that's the picture of the priest going into the temple, dealing with sin, sprinkling blood on the altar on behalf of the people. Priests, fundamentally, I mean, they do more than that. We learn they, they teach the people. But what the author of Hebrews has in mind is the priest, primary, the high priest, as he represents, acts on behalf of people to God. Every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. Why, why did Jesus need to take on flesh and blood? He could not be our substitute. He could not act on our behalf unless he was made like us. That's why there's no savior for angels. There is for men because Jesus became like us so that he could act on our behalf. On our behalf, the blank there, in service to God. And we read, he became a merciful and faithful high priest. He is merciful and faithful. And your last blank, sympathetic. Sympathetic. Keep reading in Hebrews 5. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as those for the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was anointed by him who said, you are my son today, I've begotten you. So the high priest also sympathizes with, he's sympathetic to the people he's representing. It's like, think of Moses again. Moses functioning as prophet and priest, pleading with God on behalf of the people that, that he might spare them. And the Lord does. The Lord goes up with them from Sinai. Remember, the Lord, after the golden calf, wanted to destroy Israel, start over with Moses. Moses pleads, intercedes on their behalf. He's sympathetic with the people he's representing. He cares for them. He, he, he stands in solidarity with them. Why did Christ take on flesh and blood? Why did he become humans? That he might stand in solidarity with us, sympathize with us in our weakness, and act on our behalf. And he did that at the cross. Point two here, 
purpose under purpose is offering to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a, that's a big word, and I'm glad the ESV used that big word. It's a precise term. He offered a satisfaction for sin, he, he, an atonement, an absorption of wrath, or a removal of anger. Um, we sometimes talk about a penal substitute. He's a substitute acting on our behalf, suffering a penalty, a legal penalty for our sins. So, so understand this. Let me say this crystal clear. Why does Jesus die on the cross? First and foremost, to legally pay the guilt of our sin in our behalf and in our stead to remove the wrath of God for our sins. That's the fundamental reason. That's, that's why the notion of Christ's substitutionary death is at the heart of the gospel. Yes, we can talk about to show his love. But if that's all you say, you're saying woefully little. He, he died to make propitiation, to remove God's wrath. And what's remarkable in Hebrews, if we were to study through the book, is Jesus is both the high priest who makes the offering He's the high priest who makes the offering. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the high priest would go in once a year and he'd sprinkle blood. Turn, turn to Hebrews 7. Well, we'll read that Jesus functions as our priest both in making the sacrifice. What does it mean that he made propitiation? Hebrews seven twenty-five. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Don't don't miss that. Who does the offering up? Jesus does the offering up. What does Jesus offer up? Himself. Jesus is both the priest making the sacrifice and the sacrifice being made. He he made atonement. He made propitiation. And he was able to do that because he stood in our stead, in our behalf, in solidarity with us. Offering. Jesus is the high priest who makes the offering, and Jesus is the sinless substitute who is the offering. The author of Hebrews made that point there. Turn over to chapter 9. We'll see it made again. This is the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is what was accomplished. This is why Christians make such a big deal out of the death of Jesus. In the death of Jesus, we have a substitute, a perfect substitute, who stands in solidarity with us, who becomes like us and stands in our stead and absorbs God's righteous and holy wrath for our sin on the cross, and he makes atonement. He both offers himself up as the priest making the offering and as a sacrifice being offered. Hebrews 9.24, we read, let it, sorry, we read, for Christ has entered into the holy place made with hands, not made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, But then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. All this made possible by his humanity. 
all that's made possible as humanity, which brings us to the, the last verse here. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And again, the author of Hebrews ends this triplet with the notion of help or aid. Jesus' humanity, and I want to stress this, the first and most significant reality is his humanity enables him to stand in our stead as our substitute. It enables him to bear God's wrath for our sin. It enables him to to propitiate our sin and remove it and appease it so that we can no longer have to fear death and be held in slavery to that. But more than that, on top of that, his humanity enables him to uniquely sympathize with us to be sympathetic to us. He is able to help those who are tempted for because he himself has suffered when tempted. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted to give aid, to give aid. And we get the basis. This is remarkable. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Jesus learned something in the incarnation. He learned obedience through suffering. The Bible says that. And we can talk about God being omniscient. But we know through what he suffered that Jesus has experienced suffering. And the, the point being made here is that Jesus' suffering enables him to give help. His experience of suffering as man, not as omniscient knowledge of suffering as God, but the point being emphasized here is his experience, his lived out experience of suffering as man. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to uniquely enables him to sympathize and help us. If you turn again to chapter 4 of Hebrews, um, this point is made again, same point, and it's made the same way. Uh, These are truths that I find delightful and precious. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So understand the logic of that. You might be tempted to think you have a high priest who can't sympathize, which would look something like this. Yes, Jesus died for my sins, but he doesn't really know what it's like to be me. He doesn't know what it's really like to be weak and tired and hungry and frail. And the temptation, the danger can be to to dread approaching him. He's too intimidating. He's too scary. He's too tough. He's, He's too awesome. I, I tend to think that's part of the reason why, why in Roman Catholicism it's so popular to pray to Mary and the saints. They're far less intimidating. And the temptation could be, Jesus is serious business. The last time he shows, he shows up in the Revelation, John doesn't run up and give him a high five. He falls down on his face as if dead. The risen Lord is awesome. And yet we're encouraged to believe that as awesome as and exalted as he is, Because of his temptation, because of his suffering, we have a high priest who is sympathetic with us in our weakness. In our weakness. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Which is to say, Jesus doesn't know what it feels like to give in to temptation and sin, but he does know how strong and powerful temptation can be. And so when you and I are beleaguered and battled and, and driven down and discouraged and weak and failing. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Again, this is counterintuitive. I, I tend to feel bold to approach the throne of grace when I've had a good week, when I've been faithful. Now I can come before God. Oh, no. That's, that's the first steps of works righteousness. I'm told it's precisely when I'm neat, weak and need help, which is usually when I've sinned. It's usually when I've fallen. It's usually when I've been faithless. It's usually when I totally messed up and rebelled against God. That's usually when I most need mercy and grace and help in time of need. And I'm told expressly then, in those times when I most need mercy and help and grace, I'm to boldly with confidence come before the throne because my priest is sympathetic. That is good news. And that is good news dependent entirely on the humanity and the suffering of our Lord. His suffering as man enables him to give help. Job, in his sufferings, in the book of Job, cried out in anguish about his difficulty in approaching God. He didn't understand why God was allowing him to suffer as he did. He didn't know what was going on. And he also recognized he had no way of calling on God, approaching God to give an answer. And he writes this, He is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. There is now. There's a sympathetic high priest who as our priest offered up a sufficient sacrifice for us. And we have a high priest who now appears before the very throne of God interceding on our behalf, sympathizing with us precisely because of his lived experience as man. And so as we consider Jesus riding, Jesus the man, Jesus God, Jesus the man riding into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna and palm branches and we know the cross is a week away even as John's gospel has been so lifting up and exalting Jesus' deity, consider the significance of his humanity and why it matters. What was accomplished through his taking on of flesh on our behalf. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll transition into a time of communion. Lord God, these things are too wonderful for us. I pray that you would give us the faith to believe them, that we would not um, doubt the sufficiency of the sacrifice made for us, that we would not doubt the sympathy of our Savior and our great high priest, that we would not shrink back in unbelief, but that we would boldly approach the throne of grace precisely when we have need. And Lord, that we would look to no other sacrifice, that we would find the remedy, the cure, the salvation from consciences that condemn and the fear of death and judgment to follow in the sacrifice of our great high priest and Lord. And no other, Lord God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.